the beautiful evening. Some would say the wind dakinis are coming to teach us tonight. It's interesting because they say that the wind dakinis sometimes come uh, when a great being dies. And tonight uh, I'm going to talk about a topic that has been my main teacher for the last several years, and it is the topic of impermanence and death. But before I go farther, can you hear me over the wind? You can hear me? Okay. You want it up a little. Okay. So we try to get it up without... Okay, how's that? Now it's echoing. It's okay, but the echo's okay? Maybe just a little down. Okay. So, anything to avoid death and impermanence. I, I had a brother uh, whose name was Rick, quite a guy. He was a brilliant, witty, big-hearted lawyer who loved to tease me and make fun of me for my interest in spiritual things. And uh, as he started getting sicker with AIDS, I would sometimes say, you know, do you want to come with me to a retreat I might be leading on death and dying or something, he'd say, well, Deborah, you know, I know that sitting around talking for a whole weekend about people who are sick and dying is really your idea of a good time, but um, I'd rather, why don't you come with me to New York and let's go see some shows or do something good? And, you know, I knew him well enough to know that that was really his way of saying, it's just too heavy, it's too scary, I don't want to look at it. Thank you. It's like the uh, sort of well-known Woody Allen joke where he says, no, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens to me. (laughs) And that's sort of the, it's a part of all of us. This topic of death and impermanence is unnerving, and we would really rather look away. But the Buddha suggests that we do just the opposite. The Buddha said, look deeply into the nature of life and death. And then by doing that, that's part of our path of awakening. Because if we attempt to run or hide from impermanence, we live with a kind of fear or tension because something in our body or our unconscious knows that we're completely vulnerable, that anything at any moment could happen. But if we make peace with impermanence and death, we are making peace with the process of life itself. And it's a tall order. There's a Native American song. It's called the Old Woman's Song. It goes, Spring turns into summer. Summer turns into fall. People are born, grow older, and die. Isn't it good to be a part of all of this? And of course, the sort of clincher, the zinger in there is the last line. Sure, we all know that everything comes and goes. But how many of us can really say, yes, my skin is looking more and more like a lizard, my hair is turning gray. Isn't it good to be a part of all of this, you know? (laughs) Yes, yesterday was really calm and mindful, but today the wind blew and I couldn't even find my breath. Isn't it good to be a part of all of this? You know, generally, there's a pretty big part of all of us that wants to resist 
uh, changes. I'll tell you a story about my dearest friend, who a number of you know, her name is Devi, and she's been my dear Dharma sister for more than 20 years. We've been to many retreats together, uh, we've led retreats together for years, uh, including wilderness vision quests, um, many years of journeying together. And one year when we were out in the wilderness leading a trip, she found a mole on her leg, a new one, So when she went home, this was just a few years ago, she went and found out, in fact, it was melanoma, which, if you don't know, is a very serious form of cancer if you don't catch it in time. She caught it in time, surgery, and then some, just six or eight weeks later, a whole other emergency happened that brought her again into the hospital. Very, very severe asthma attack series happened. And even with all the big Western meds, she was in the emergency room. It was very serious. And then six or eight weeks after that, back to the emergency room for emergency appendectomy. So she's about 55 years old at the time, this particular winter, quite a winter for Debbie. But by the summertime, she seemed well again, and she seemed fine and normal, so we packed our packs as every summer for, you know, 22 years, and heading out to one of our trips. This one, um, we were going with both of our husbands, so just the four of us were going. And um, <clears throat> we had really heavy packs because we were going in for two weeks. So we started hiking a, a really familiar trail, one that we'd done many times. And Debbie just had to keep stopping, and there was this pain and that, and adjusting the weight, and and it was just really slow going. And we all knew, because we'd been on the trail, we were trying to get to a certain ridge before dark, in case you're backpackers, you know how that works, you know, you can't just stop anywhere. And so uh, we were going really slow, and after hours of just getting practically nowhere, we came to this sweet little lake, and Debbie said, I have to talk, Um, we're not going to get to that ridge, I need to talk. And she sat down, and we all sat down in the shade, and she said, uh, I feel, I feel so shaky and fragile. It's as though I've lost confidence in my body. And here all these years, I was the leader, the backpacker, and here I am, the one holding up the group. It's, she said, this is really an awkward and strange new position. And and she said, but I just can't push through like I used to. I just can't, I just can't push. And then she stopped and tears came in her eyes and she just, something was dawning on her, hitting her at another level. And she said, this is impermanence. This is aging. This isn't a trip to the emergency room. This is the process of growing older. And it hit her in such a way because of the context of being there in the wilderness. She just felt this grief for the letting go of that youth, that mountain climbing youth. And once she really saw it for what it was, this is impermanence. She said, you know, I see now as I'm looking There's been a way I've been trying to hide this from myself and from you. Some way that I've been wanting to cover it up. But now I see it, and I'm not going to hide this. I'm going to learn to accept this, to 
to grow with this process of aging. She said, if I need to ask for help, I'm going to ask for help. And if my memory slips, I'm not going to try to cover it up. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to joke about it. I'm going to somehow learn to be graceful with this, make friends with this truth, this thing that's happening. So she kept talking, and she talked about how women in their mid-50s in this culture begin to disappear and become invisible, become valueless to our culture, that the gifts of the ripened soul depth of an elder aren't even seen in this culture. And she said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pretend I'm younger and stronger than I am. I'm just going to be me. So it was really an incredible sharing. It's hard to really tell you quite the power of that day. But we sat together, the four of us, and talked about our gratitude for having the Dharma, that we have a context and tools to meet the inevitable changes that that will happen to every one of us. And we sat and actually talked about someday one of us in that circle of four won't be here, and how we'll miss that one, and how it's true. Someday we'll have to say goodbye to even each other. So it was this very uh, beautiful time there, and I remember it very vividly because we were sitting under one of my favorite varieties of tree. It's called a weeping spruce, Trinity Alps, and uh, you know by this lake, and we were in that place of really uh, tender intimacy that happens when someone takes the risk to unveil their heart and their vulnerability. So we were sharing in that place. And none of us had the need to go anywhere. We had lost the need to get to that ridge, to get somewhere. We were sitting so uh, at peace with just being where we are, as though we had already reached the destination that we were trying to get to, which was just to be in love and at ease and at peace. Because Devi had given us this incredible gift by revealing this process that's so often hidden. And each of us in that process had had died a little bit to our identification with the youthful mountain climber. And in, in that dying, there's being born a bit into a, a kind of equanimity. And we sat, we actually sat silently for a long time under that tree and really felt that feeling, isn't it good to be a part of all this? It's beautiful. Once we don't resist it, it's beautiful. Pema Chodron called it the delight of impermanence. The Buddha keeps giving us this invitation, you notice, every night in a Dharma talk, over and over, to go beyond our conditioning, which is to resist the unpleasant, the aging, the whatever, and to grasp something. And Devi really called on her 20 years plus of Dharma practice to pick up that invitation. She really chose to do 
to use this, to see what it is. This is impermanence. To feel what there was. Oh, grief. That's sad. That was a good life. And then open. Consciously, intentionally open rather than close. And of course it's a process. But she sat right there and worked it and took us all through. It was beautiful. And this same process that Devi did in the wilderness happens, I'm sure you've noticed, right here on retreat. And it can happen around an issue like health or body, but it can also happen in the most microscopic way. You can see impermanence, have whatever reaction you may have to the seeing, work with opening to it, and then begin touching this place of equanimity. The Buddha asks us to look for and see for ourselves the ever-changing nature of existence. So at this stage in the retreat, where the mindfulness is getting quite strong, there'll be times for some people where everything is very quiet and there's just a thought arises and vanishes, a sensation is here and then it's gone, some feeling or emotion or mood, another thought, and we are sitting there and we're seeing what had originally appeared so solid suddenly is seen as this impermanent ever-changing flow. Everything, every moment, being born and dying, being born and disappearing. And sometimes seeing impermanence at this level can be feel very freeing, and sometimes it doesn't feel so comfortable. It, it feels sort of uncomfortable, like like standing in quicksand and wishing there was just something solid that I could hold on to. But wherever we put, whatever we put our attention on, poof, it's gone. So this can sometimes, not always, but sometimes there can be a kind of fear that goes along with seeing impermanence. This, this fear of, this insecurity. I want something solid, please. And out of that insecurity can come an incredible creative variety array of forms of grasping and so for instance you can walk out you know to your place where you always walk in the desert and some other yogi might be there it's like how dare that yogi take my desert you know my place don't they know that's mine you know that's that grasping there's something real and we can also sit and create stories to tell ourselves just to recreate a feeling of a self or a life or a world. Anything other than this strange arising and passing. But eventually, if we just sit and practice just as we've been talking about, just noticing, oh, fear, oh, insecurity, oh, stories, eventually what may have at first felt insecure or uncomfortable becomes a great relief, becomes a resting place. Seeing impermanence helps us begin to hold life more lightly. And some people uh, might say, okay, well, I get it. Everything 
changes and everything dies. But now, what is the really deep mystery teaching here? That why did the Buddha keep stressing how important it is to see impermanence? What's the what's the esoteric teaching here? So, I will tell you the great inner teaching. Are you ready? Here it is. Everything changes and dies. That's it. That's the great secret teaching of impermanence. So. Yes, we can see it, but it's hard to really be penetrated by that truth, to let it in all the way. So it's not just seeing it at a certain level that begins this freeing process. It's how we respond moment to moment to the changes. So how many of us, when we really hit a moment of the limitation of aging, can do what Devi did? open. How many of us, if we're sitting here having the best ever sitting of our whole life, and we realize it's time to go and wash the dishes, and we have to get up and leave that sitting, how do we respond to that change? Do we fight it and grasp at it, or do we open and accept? And it is, of course, as you hear every night in a Dharma talk, it's this opening it's this accepting that begins to bring about this freedom. So the last four or five years of my life, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, um, I have had to learn the lessons of impermanence over and over again. And it's been very, very powerful and difficult at times. Um, about. Five years ago, two different friends of mine died, and that began a series of deaths <coughs> of very close people. And then after my two friends died, <coughs> then one after my brother died, and then my mother died, and then my grandmother died, and then my father died. And in the midst of all that, there were a number of other large losses for me, impermanence everywhere, constantly. And I actually know that there's a number of people here in this room that could make even longer lists. And so the reason I mention this isn't so that you'll worry about me or feel bad in any way. I'm actually really doing fine with the whole process. Um, the reason I mention it is because it is so common. It's normal. Not necessarily have everybody in your family gone in three years, but what is normal is that we all die. Every single one of us in this room, the only thing that's certain is that we'll die. Every single person that you dearly love, those dear sweet children, all of them, everyone will die. And this isn't good or bad. It's just true. It's just so. Suzuki Roshi said, Life is like getting into a boat just about to go, out, just about to sail out to sea and sink. Com very comforting. <laughs> Thank you, Suzuki Roshi. <laughs> so we can see this at a certain level, like I said. 
But we are such tender, sensitive beings, we humans. It's scary, and it's hard to really let it in. So, for the most part, as you know, we resist it and deny it. And one of the um, funnest places to see how we deny this truth of impermanence is to go shopping for birthday cards, where you see this whole wall of cards, mostly jokes about how awful it is to get old. And so I'll read you one that I recently received that says, birthdays are like cleaning the oven, but without the fun. (laughs) I love that. So it's fun to play with it. (laughs) They They just got it. It's fun to play and laugh about it, but actually, um, we put an enormous amount of energy, consciously and unconsciously, into avoiding the truth of impermanence. And our attempts to defy uh, impermanence have become almost mythic. It's, it's just incredible what we do in this culture. You know, I mean, we all know that we spend just billions of dollars on pills and potions and suctions and transplants and implants and you name it, you know, to do whatever we can do to try to stall this inevitable thing called change and impermanence. And it would be, it would be actually sort of karmical if the price that we paid were not so high. But when we attempt to deny impermanence, we have to close some part of ourselves off. Something in us has to become shrunken, anesthetized, and we lose a contact with the connection with life. We lose our ability to really give and receive the nourishment of life, and so we end up with this sort of it can be called deficient emptiness, a kind of feeling of holes that need to be filled, insatiable hunger, which we then end up trying to fill up with addictions and with things. Joanna Macy says, we have a pathetic addictive need for more and more things, more and more fuel to run the things, more and more weapons to defend the things, We're ready to destroy a friend, a country, or our world to keep these things. And somehow, we equate all of this with happiness and security. So one teacher calls this American style of denying impermanence the great deception. And we can actually live in the great deception for a while until something, some tragedy, some shock, comes along and wakes us out of the great deception. In fact, it's even possible to have tragedy occur and keep your head in the sand. I've known people who managed to do that. I'm sure you may know people, as I do, who were living along in the great deception, and then they received uh, a serious diagnosis of a terminal illness, or they had a terrible accident, and suddenly this great spiritual opening began to happen. That's the force of coming out of denial. And suddenly, there's energy released. So the Buddha had a better idea 
than waiting for a tragedy to shock us into what is actually so. He suggested and he asked of us to reflect regularly and deeply on impermanence and death, to actually look toward it instead of away. And one of my friends who loves to kid me about all of this said, well, Deborah, the Buddha was just a morbid, depressed guy, you know, asking people to go to mortuaries to sit around and watch bodies. I mean, that's really weird, you know, if you think about it. Um, and actually, though, the instruction to look deeply into the truth of impermanence and death is a, uh, a profound teaching. He, he asked us to do this so we don't have to live our life in this shut-down, guarded place of denial. So when we do take the time and the courage to reflect on death and impermanence, some of what happens, you may have noticed, maybe when you heard about the snake or whatever, you may have noticed suddenly this moment, this life becomes quite precious if I really know that at any moment I could die. This retreat, the opportunity to practice, the opportunity to find out who am I now, this all becomes so much more precious, seen in the light of we don't know how much longer we have. When we reflect on death, it helps us to see what really matters in our life, to, to see the priorities of our life in a whole different way. Like I have this thing, I don't know if any of the women in here do this, but I believe the toilet seats should be down, you know? And so let's say that my husband left the toilet seat up and he's about to drive off for work and we're having a little snit, a 17-year power struggle over one topic, you know? Um, we're having our little snit, let's say. And if I really reflect on the truth of impermanence, which means I may never see him again, that's the truth. That is the truth. Am I going to hold on to that little snit, or am I going to let it go and attempt to make some deeper connection? So impermanence can really help us find what matters or the reflection on impermanence. And uh, Don Juan says, when we take death as our advisor, take death as our advisor, it puts life in a different light. It helps us to change our perspective on all these attachments of whatever it is that we think we so need to make us happy. So, obviously, um, if it was really easy to open to impermanence and death, um, this would be a different world. It takes real compassion for ourselves and courage to actually look into the face of, of this topic. And Trumpa Rinpoche said, we can trade in our small-minded struggle for security for a much vaster view one of fearless openness and genuine heroism. 
And he called people who had this kind of heroism, spiritual warriors. And I have a poem here that a friend of mine, you may know Jennifer Wellwood, wrote. And it's really written from that voice of the spiritual warrior. It's called On Meeting Death. And in this poem, the word death um, is, well, she uses the word Pluto for the word death. Tonight, Pluto, with the crescent moon as my witness, I welcome you as my lover. If you have come to break down my door, see, I have opened it and wait here for you at its threshold. If you have come to hurl me into the abyss, watch now as I release all false supports one by one and fall towards you in ecstasy. Hear this, Pluto, Lord of transformative fire. What you have come to take from me, I offer you. Hear this, death. What you have come to take from me, I offer you. So this is quite a relationship to that force of death. And sometimes when we're able to give to that force of death over whatever it's taking, there's a great beauty in the surrender. You have experienced that in the small deaths that we go through. And sometimes this force of death or change comes and what it has to take from us just breaks our heart and we have to just grieve. At a retreat I recently taught at in Santa Sabina, a man who's come to many of these Yucca Valley retreats came in to interview with me and he said, He said, two weeks ago, my last friend died of AIDS. So now I've lost all my friends. Eighteen of my dear friends died. And he said, the only good thing is that now on this earth, there is no one left that I have a close relationship with too. So if someone else dies, I don't have to go through this again. (laughs) This was, you know, whoa. Uh, We just both had to sit and grieve. We had to let our hearts just break at that particular face of death. And it's so mysterious, this being a human, because to really be fulfilled here as a human, we have to let ourselves care and connect and love something or someone, a pet, a person, a plant, but we have to let ourselves make that connection. It's just part of the curriculum, the assignment here on planet Earth. Yet we do it knowing it comes. That love comes with a hundred percent guarantee. The guarantee that you know, I will have to say goodbye to this loved one. I have to love and I have to let go. Incredible setup we have.
So knowing this, should we avoid love? No, no way. That would be so much sadder to live a life avoiding love. Knowing this, we have to do what Stephen Levine calls be ready to face the consequence of love, which means to be ready to grieve. When someone asked Thich Nhat Hanh, they said, when someone dies, do you grieve? And he said, of course I grieve. When a friend, a brother, or a sister dies, I grieve, and then I go on. And as you know, he's had to face many, many deaths. So he knows about grieving and going on. So grief is not something that we have to be afraid of or avoid or repress or hold down. And it's also not something that we have to become identified with or hold on to or draw out any longer than it needs to be there. We just let grief come, let it do its job, and it has a job to do. It's helping us let go and let it go when it's gone. There's a poem that I think is probably read at every retreat. We could probably recite it together, but it's a Mary Oliver one, and I'll read it, a bit of it. She says, To live in this world, you must be able to do three things. To love what is mortal, to hold it against your bones, knowing your whole life depends on it. And when it comes time to let it go, you must let it go. And it's true. So last year, uh, this time last year, it was the first time I mentioned in the first retreat that I, the first 10 days of this retreat, um, I wasn't here for the first time in many years at Yucca Valley because I was, uh, I was at a different kind of retreat. I was at the um, Taking Care of Dying Father retreat in, in a little smoggy corner in San Diego for about five, most of five months I was commuting between uh, the Bay Area and San Diego, but mostly I stayed there with him. And it was a powerful, uh, heart-breaking, sometimes back-breaking, heart-opening thing to do. And I know that many of you here have had this experience, and you know really how profound it is to be with a person and support them through their dying. And I want to highly recommend, just as I would recommend, go to a 10-day or 20-day retreat. If you ever have the opportunity to, to be there and support someone through a death, go on that kind of retreat, too. It's, it's a powerful practice for your own work. And of course, I mean, obviously, it's an incredible service to someone when you're dying to know that someone's there who cares about you makes a huge difference. And it is, it is a retreat. You do a lot of sitting. 
You do, uh, and you're sitting, you're not just sitting with your own agitation and pain and sleeping, but you're sitting with someone else's. And up comes all the stuff and you work with it and let it go. It's very, very powerful for practice. So my father was a, a good man, basically you would say. He was a kind man. He, his name was Don and he, uh, you know, he was a Republican from Southern California. What can I say? You know, a, a provider. You know, he was very, very from, uh, comfortable sort of being in control of everyone and everything. And he'd been managing many people for many, many years. And he, uh, living with him those last months was like watching uh, an onion being peeled. I just watched him have to let go of layer after layer of the separate self. And it started, the whole thing happened fairly compactly. The whole, from, from no illness to death was, the whole thing was about five months. So it started with, you know, he was the one who'd always been the athlete, you know, the golfer, golfing, you know, in his retirement like five days a week. He had to go from being the golfer to being the guy who was just barely scooting around with the walker. And he had to make that shift in about one month. And then just every every week after week, day after day, there were just layers and layers of his letting go. And some of the most um, difficult things for him to work with were at about four months before his death. It wasn't right before his death. That was hardest. But about four months before, he, um, it was just so hard for him to let go of being the one who had always taken care of everyone else and be the one who was now being taken care of. Because his sense of worth, his sense of value was completely tied up with being the one who takes care. So that was a lot of work for a while. And sometimes these letting goes were not just heavy or difficult, but they were actually funny. Um, I will never forget the first time I gave him a shower. I mean, it's... <laughs> if you could only see, I could never describe you this scene. But uh, we both ended up completely wet. My husband came to help. He was visiting me for the weekend. He was completely wet. There were clothes and soap all over him. And we all, we all ended up just laughing, laughing together at this whole incredible scene of bumbling through it together, learning together. So generally, what we would do when we came to one of these let goes, like if you, you know, now it's time for me to help you change your clothes, or now it's time for you to stop driving the car, whatever it would be, he would generally sort of resist it a little or disagree, and then we'd sit down and talk. He called it the kitchen table talks. He said, Deborah, these are the kitchen table talks. We'd sit down and we'd talk, and eventually he would sort of open and we'd go on. But when we came, there was one hurdle that we came to that was uh, the hardest of all. And it was when it was time for me to help him change his diaper and clean up. And this one we couldn't talk about. We couldn't, he just, he couldn't, uh, 
He had to be in denial, he had to get mad, he had to lie, he had to have really embarrassing experiences. And so finally we sat down at that kitchen table and, and we just wept together. We just wept. It was, it was so painful for him as he, he said, uh, he said, Deborah, what's the point of being alive? If this, is, if this is my life. Anything that he associated with being dignified, being self-respecting, to him this was the opposite of that. And we... He, he just had to grieve for the loss of the man he had been, for the loss of all the ways he'd felt in control. And I also had to grieve. I had to grieve for... I'm sitting here with my father who who's crying. I'm, I've seen the guy cry, you know, a couple times in my whole life. Or once in my whole childhood, actually. And I was also having to grieve for my own loss. Because I also, as we sat there, I was losing this guy who'd been so, uh, you know, stable, so dependable. And somehow, as we cried together that day, we went beyond the concepts of how it's supposed to be. And somehow we opened in to a place of love, of trust that could hold it all, even that. And we finished this conversation, and we went and we changed the diaper. And we were on to the next thing. By a day and a half later, that was history. Then we were on to the next and the next, because these letting goes just kept happening every day. And there, by about, I guess about six weeks before his death, there had been so much letting go that something very deep in him was starting to transform. He, he was starting to sort of glow. And he had always been, as I said, a, a kind man. But now he'd been so stripped of everything that basically all that was left was this love and this goodness. And he was so happy. He was filled with joy. One morning he woke up, he said, and he was filled with cancer. You know, he's just bones. And he said, you know, I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And we're sort of going, oh, really? You know, wow. And he began having um, spiritual experiences and mystical experiences. Sometimes I, you know, I came back from shopping one day, and he looked at me, and he said, he was sort of glowing again, and he said, I just realized what the resurrection is. And I went, oh, really? This is my father. You have to get, this is this... Republican guy who never went to church, he never looked inside. Anyway, he, was, he, he didn't ever talk about anything like this in my entire life. And here he is talking suddenly about you know the resurrection. One day I came back and he said, Deborah, 
I just realized that everything my mother ever told me about God being in everything and everywhere, she, he said, she was right. I just realized that. How did I not get it? <laughs> and then he said, I can't believe I'm saying this. I can't believe you're hearing me say it, but I am. You know. And so he was actually aware of this incredible uh, change that was happening. And about a month before he died, I, um, boy, probably the most, I wish I had this talk on tape this time, because by this point, so many layers of his persona, who he ever thought he ever was, they were so long gone, that there was this incredible access into this very pure and uh, deep place in him. And we would have these phenomenal conversations and he was having these experiences. So in this conversation, I, uh, we were talking about practices that we were doing and that we would be doing during and after his death, and we were doing some of those. And then um, we were, I said, it's possible that when you die, after your body dies, there may be a great light. And if that might, if that should happen, just go ahead and go right into that light. And I said, it won't be hard for you because that's what you're made of. And he looks right at me, you know, no ego in this at all. And he says, you know, Deb, I never would have put it in those words. But now that you mention it, <laughs> I realize I've always known about this light. It's always been here. I just never took the time to pay attention to it. And then he actually said, Deborah, be sure to tell people about this because they'll enjoy their life more. <laughs> so beautiful. So, so beautiful. I actually, afterwards, I got a piece of paper out and I wrote, you know, pages of trying to catch these quotes from this particular day. So for the last week's month, he, he was mostly in this place of this radiance, this love, this joy, and occasionally there would be the agitation, the disorientation, the confusion that's part of going through these, getting ready to die and be so sick. And it was exactly like being on retreat. There was this field of ease, and here would be this agitation, and we'd be with it. Just like we're with agitation, we're with it, we open to it, we let it be, and every single time it would pass. And what would be back? This great ease and his happiness. He'd, he'd come back from a nap or something, he was, well, I feel great. And he was, his memory was so bad at that point that he didn't even remember, you know, <laughs> that an hour before he'd been, you know, confused or whatever. So by the last week or five or six days, all that was there was just this this glow, this love. And he really didn't have the energy to talk anymore, but he could he could talk if we asked him to. He could hear us. He knew what was happening. But he was basic. People would come. His friends would come. He was just, if you've ever <clears throat> been with a dying patient of cancer, you know, he was just like a skeleton covered by skin. <clears throat> That's all that was there, and then all this radiance. And people would come, and he didn't talk, 
but he would just light up and sort of bless people and throw them kisses. And people were just enjoying hanging around because it was a uh, just a beautiful place to be. Um, so much love. So finally, on what turned out to be the last day, you never know that's going to be the day, but <clears throat> I went in there one morning, <clears throat> and I looked into his eyes, and it, it was awesome. It was like looking in to the infinity of this universe, which is both empty but completely filled with love. There was no dawn left. There was nobody trying to be a good sport or wondering when is this going to get over with. There was no needing anything. There was just such, such openness. And I looked at him, and we were just looking at each other in a way that we never had seen each other. And he did something he had never done. This was not one of our rituals. He reached up, and he pulled me down, and he kissed me on my cheek. And then I stood up, and we looked at each other in this timeless connection. It really, I mean, I can still feel it right now, that particular connection. And then his his very best friend, who had been his friend since they were eight or nine years old, these two guys, and um, had come every day during the last five or six weeks, or four weeks of my dad's life. Such a loyal friend, every day. His friend named Jack was standing there, and I had grown up knowing this man, you know, since he was my dad's friend, and he'd been sort of, I had thought of as a kind of macho man, you know. He had been the football player and the commander of the military air station, you know, and when we went and visited him, it was, you know, everybody was saluting. And here was Jack at the bedside this day of this look, and he took my father's hand, and the two of them began this darshan, this eye connection, and it was so beautiful, both of them with these tears, saying this silent, timeless, Goodbye, thank you. It was it was just so beautiful to see Jack was as gone as my father, gone into his heart. And once he had said these two goodbyes, um, he took it was time that he always took a nap at this particular time in the morning. He started his nap, and he never woke up from that particular nap. But later, hours later, we noticed his breathing had changed. <clears throat> so we went in, Hubbard in quite close, and um, we noticed that there was a long space between breaths. And we actually thought he died, but then he took another little inhale and then a little exhale. And then there was this longer space, very, very, very quiet. And then the last breath was just like a, the sweetest little breeze, just this little inhale and this little exhale. Totally peaceful, still, and so, so beautiful. Just nothing to be afraid of. 
This, this was nothing to be afraid of. And we always, with all the deaths, uh, do a death meditation. We stay with the body for many, many hours and, and do practices and meditate and pray and sing. And so this particular death meditation, each one is as unique as the individual. Uh, and I never can tell what's going to happen. But with my father, as I sat there those hours, what there was was just immense silence and peace and a very fine white light. And that just deepened as the night went on. I know that when I tell this particular story, which I've told two other times. It's very, actually quite moving for me to share it with you. I know that for some people it stirs a place of pain because you might ask, why couldn't I have been with my loved one when they died? Or why was my parents' death so difficult when, you know, that we can use anything to beat ourselves up or create suffering? And I really ask that you not use this story for bringing more suffering to yourself, that death is such a mystery. We have, we, we don't understand how it happens, who to when, why. We can't control how our loved ones die. So please be kind to yourself around that. But I tell the story because it illustrates a few points that I think are are really important. And my father's path to finding such a place of peace and happiness came through death and cancer at the very end of his life. And what I want to emphasize is the incredible good fortune that we all share, that we do not have to wait till the last weeks to learn about this miracle of letting go, but that every moment of mindfulness, every moment that we can meet either a joy or a sorrow without grasping or pushing away, but with acceptance, with awareness, every moment we're doing the same work that my father did. We're letting go of that grip on those attachments to the layers of the separate self. And when we begin to see through the conditioning by doing this, then we begin to be able to touch these places of the unconditioned. This story also reminds us that when we look deeply into the face of death or impermanence, we don't find this great bottomless well of fear. But what we eventually find is the deathless, the ocean of love, the ever-shining, someone called it. There's a very wise and beloved teacher, Ajahn Jiminyan, in uh, 
He's a monk, an abbot in Thailand, who has um, risked his life many, many times mediating between warring factions, and um, his life is often threatened. And people have said, Achen Jiminy, how can you be so calm and fearless when your life is in danger? And he said, if they shoot me, they shoot me. I've already died many times. I've died to the heat, to the bugs, to the pain, to the hunger. Through practice, I learned to let go. So now I can abide with a peaceful heart, and my life is filled with joy. Such a paradox that by opening to death and dying these small deaths, we open to the greatest joy. So let's just sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.